Hey friends. Um, so, you know, I, I'm here, I'm talking to you. I'm not going to quit. This is how it goes. I record an episode and I go, oh, don't just stop at one. I want to keep talking to you. What else am I going to do? Oh, um, so I want to come clean here. I recent, I actually did something today. Um, and I feel like I've misled you. I was writing JavaScript, as I talked about in the last episode, a bunch of history, push state, replace state stuff. And I refactored a bit of code into a class. I did it. I refactored a bunch of functions into a class. And I just got done telling you about how in JavaScript I don't write classes. <laughs> and here I am writing a class. Um, ultimately, so here's something about me. Um, I don't have a ton of, um, I don't really operate on rules. Even I, I may even sound like I do, but really my internal process is, my internal process of programming is programming and listening to the code. I really can't describe it in any better way than like, um, uh, like some like Pocahontas shit, like colors of the wind type deal. Like I'm like, I have my hand on a rock and I'm listening for what the rock wants to tell me. Um, <laughs> that really is, that's what it's like though for me is programming is uh, I'm observing the code and I'm letting the code tell me what it wants. And it'll tell you what it wants over time. You have to be patient. You have to listen. If you don't, and it's funny because these are metaphors. You have to be patient, meaning you're not going to get it right the first time. You have to listen, meaning you can't, you know, throw something out there and, and let it go and, you know, um, not return to it by listening. Li- listening to it means paying attention to its shortcomings, paying attention to its own pain. Um, the code experiences pain when it fails, when it, when there's a cannot call method on undefined, that's pain for the code and you don't want the code to experience the pain. So how do you refactor it for the code to not experience that pain? You want the code to be strong and independent, and robust, and capable of the thing that it should do. Um, so I listen to the code. I do a lot of listening. So I went off on this little tangent here, this little poetic tangent. What I started to, to tell you is that um, I, I, if you ever think that I have some ideologies of the way code should be written, um, let me tell you that I don't, or that I, if I appear to, I shouldn't. Um, because my real process is just programming and seeing the, and just kind of just feeling out the right abstractions and seeing how they feel because you have to try something to see how it feels. And if you get stuck in some rule, um, I I believe in rules big time. I, I believe in personal rules, things that you use, you have an experience and now you log that in your brain as like, okay, I should do this. And I also believe in shortcuts for, uh, to alleviate the pain of decision-making, so rules as as a way of leaving um, the pain of decision making, where sometimes it's just nice to say, as a rule, I alphabetize my imports so that I just never have to make that decision. Or as a rule, I what what's a more programmery rule? Like as a rule, I do early returns, you know, um, which is funny because that's sort of a rule of mine, but um, but I it's not a hard rule because. There's times where to return early, you have to invert the logic and it just doesn't, the code doesn't express itself the way it should. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's funny as I'm programming, it's funny cause everything I do is in public, especially as my projects grow, people work on the code that I've written. 
and they refactor it in ways and they tell me to do other things or that I should, you know, do things a different way. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. And by wrong, I mean, sometimes they do something that I just is completely against the intention I had when I wrote it. Whoa, this is a rambling episode. Let me try to get back to uh, home base here. So this whole thing is supposed to be about the fact that I created a JavaScript class in the code. And here's what it was. I am dealing with push state and there's an object. So window.history.state in a browser gives you an object or null. Null most of the time in normal, you know, web, you know, native website like index.html. Like if you type in the console window.history.state, it will be null. But if you do fancy things with replace state and push state, these things I'm telling you about where you can manipulate, uh, when you go to the back button and you right click it and you see those those list items there, you can do window.history.push state and add a new arbitrary object, whatever you want, with a new URL, and it will add to that list. And then when somebody hits the back button, you can listen for pop state. It's an event that happens. It's like listening for a back button click, basically. You can listen for pop state. You think of it like popping the state off of that stack. And then you can view the, the arbitrary object that you stored in there. And so the arbitrary object uh, at first was just a plain JSON object of data that I was using to, so for instance, this query string stuff. So if you change a piece of data that's in the query string, so if it's step, if it's a multi-step form, you have step one, two, and three. You hit the next step button in LiveWire, step goes to two, and you told it that you want the step to be stored in the query string. So I listen for that change and I go, okay, it's time to push that onto the state, the history state stack. So that's history.push state. And then I push some information that says like, okay, this component set this data to two. So this way, once you go off and you do other steps and do other things, you can hit the back button and then it'll pop state that off and go, okay, they they once set this to two, let's reset it back to two, okay? That's the basics of history push state, the very most basic way of expressing it. So the arbitrary data was stored in just an array and I had key values. Keys were the component IDs that spurred the change and then the value is the data about that component ID or about that change. Um, so basically the deal is I started, as I'm digging deeper and deeper into this push state stuff, there's lots of constraints or the way that I'm designing the system, I'm imposing constraints, kind of feeling out what's the right design. And so here's the thing, get this. If you have uh, an object with keys, so in a JSON object, an object literal in JavaScript, and you have keys, and let's say that you um, you write a, J- a JSON object where like the first key pair is a uh, key value pair is like, hey there. Let's just say it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, it's hey there. The next one is abracadabra, okay? So H comes after A. And normally, uh, so, so if you just save that into an object in JavaScript, um, in JSON, whatever, JavaScript object, the hey there is going to be first because you wrote it first. You put it there first. And then abracadabra is going to be second. That's just how it works. However, if you JSON stringify that and then JSON parse it again, it will reorder those keys to be alphabetical. Similarly, if you do uh, object spread, anytime you're doing object spread, the dot, dot, dot object in JavaScript, you are alphabetizing the keys. You're forcing a reorder of the keys. This is bad for things that need to be predictably in order. Um, and there's a lot of places in LiveWare that this actually matters. So I avoid object spread now, and I didn't know that. It's such an expressive syntax for doing a ton of things. 
um, but I don't use it because it manipulates the object. So actually, there are other data structures, and this might turn into a data structures in JavaScript lesson. All right, well, let's go there quick. There's other data. So, so this is the pain that I'm feeling. This, these objects, they, they're they're so loosey goosey. They, there's no contract of what order they'll be in, and I care about the order. So I thought maybe there's a better data structure than a plain JavaScript object. So JavaScript has other data structures. There's maps, and there's sets, and there's arrays, of course, and maps and sets. So a map is actually kind of like a JSON object with a few differences, but the key one here is that it actually maintains a predictable order. It will keep the order of the uh, the items that you the keys and values as you set them. The order that you set them. Problem with it is you can't set. Uh, you can't like splice a map. You can't take a new item and shove it in the middle. So can't use maps. Sets just in they enforce uniqueness. They're kind of like arrays that enforce that um, that no two items can be unique. So you can actually use them as a shortcut for like array unique, you know. But uh, but anyway, so sets are out. So I realized that I need my own data structure. I need because I don't want to use something loosey goosey like a JavaScript object. I need something predictable. I need something that knows how to turn itself into a string and get itself back out of a string and not reorder itself. I need something that can be be responsible for things and know how to do things to itself. So I created a new object, a new class called LiveWire State. So now instead of storing a loosey goosey JavaScript object in the history state, I store this class. Um, so I created a class, Sumi. Um, I created a class because I needed a new data structure. And then, of course, there's the big question. We don't have time for this, but as you're designing classes, where are the boundaries? What stuff do you put in there? Do you take all your functions and make them methods? How much did they deal with other with concerns outside of themselves? And these are really good questions. And um, whatever, there's no easy answers. And I'm just uh, I'm just learning as I go. But I created an object, and that's what I wanted to tell you. I needed to get that off my chest. So thank you for listening. Uh, I'll talk to you later.